Hello, and thank you again for, for coming to this talk today. Um, as Chris just said, I'm in the very, very final stage of my PhD, and the more often I say it, I'm sure, the closer I get it and, and the more true it becomes. Um, and while I'm doing my PhD in cognitive psychology, so I'm, I'm generally interested in how people think and, and behave and what motivates their behaviour and what um, explains their thinking processes. Um, this has very little to do with my PhD and I think that's actually quite a good thing. Um, what I'm going to do today is to give you a short overview of a few of what I've called mental shortcuts. So I'll, I'll be trying to explain and to give a first uh, insight uh, into some of the traps most of us fall rather regularly um, and why some of these traps can't be avoided or can only be avoided at, at great cost and great effort. Um, so the way this is going uh, to be is I'll talk for roughly 50 minutes plus minus five um, confidence interval. Um, and then will there be a short break or we'll just follow up we'll with the question? Right. So, no break, no breakdown, just the questions after the talk. Okay. So, just to um, emphasize that before I start, um, what I'm going to present is obviously a selection. Um, uh, hopefully you get an idea that there are quite a lot of shortcuts out there. Um, and in the time I have, I can only cover... Um, a short selection and it's a short selection I could probably talk about this for a day or two uh, non-stop but you'll be happy that I don't and I'll finish off with um, something that's very close to a conclusion and hopefully some food for thought for you to take away from this talk so just to give you an idea of uh, the range um, of shortcuts I'll be looking at so we'll cover each of them Okay, now what I've defined mental shortcut is basically um, a thought process that um, is usually very fast, um, but it trades off accuracy full speed. Okay, so whenever you come to a conclusion or to a result that's not based on a very careful consideration of all the available evidence, um, but uh, you get there faster, but there's some trade off. Um, that's what I would define as a shortcut. And I place them on a continuum from being hardwired, i.e. being shortcuts that we can't avoid, basically, can't avoid to make, to shortcuts that are just a matter of knowledge. Um, so if you know about it, it's much easier to avoid them. And some shortcuts that are somewhere in between that you can probably learn to avoid, but it needs a lot of training, a lot of practice. Um, and this is also a bit related to um, a concept that's been defined by Kahneman and Tversky, who talk about problems of understanding and problems of application. And a problem of understanding is, um, let's do it the other way around, a problem of application is when um, you don't quite know how to do something, but once someone explains it to you, you can apply it and then it's all right. But a problem of understanding is if the problem itself is so difficult that it's hard to wrap your head around this particular problem. Okay. Okay, now let's start with this one. Um, if you look at this picture, I'd like you to, hopefully that works when, it does on, when it's presented on a slide. Um, 
works, you should see the, the dots at the intersection of the lines change colour depending on where you look at in the picture. Yeah. Okay, now here's a challenge for you. Try not to see this. Okay, try to see the intersection and the dots in the intersection in the exact same shading. Okay, anyone successful? Excellent. So that's a shortcut I would consider to be a hardwired shortcut because you can explain how this works. Uh, we know how the eye works. We can explain how this, how this optical illusion is created. But knowing how it works does not change a single thing about it not working for you. All right? Um, so these kind of processing shortcuts that are optical illusions, they are quite useful um, because obviously they speed up your perception or they speed up the processing of the input you get from your eyes. Um, and by speeding this up, it reduces the overall workload on your, on your cognitive processes. The downside is that you don't have any conscious control of it, so you can't switch off this part of the brain that, that works this um, optical illusion for you. And another downside, obviously, is that you can't really be entirely sure that what you see is really what's real and what's out there in the world. So your perception might not necessarily represent the actual world. <coughs> now, some of you uh, may have thought when I showed this shortcut, that this, uh, or this optical illusion, that this is um, based exactly on how the eye works and how the, the rods and cones are activated in the brain. So there's a, a very um, basic physiological explanation for how the shortcut works. But in this case, that doesn't hold. Okay? Um, most, if not all of you, probably see a smaller white rectangle in front of the big white rectangle. Okay? There's no rectangle there. What the eye does is um, take the, the missing corners in the uh, large black circles as an indication that something is in front of it and it creates the rectangle. Okay? Now that, that optical illusion obviously is something that's not based on, on a physiological process but on a process of um, or is a result of how the brain processes the input and tries to make sense of, of the data and tries to make sense of the input. Um, this is another fairly famous optical illusion, the Müller-Lyer optical illusion. Okay, so um, hopefully, what you should see is the left line appearing shorter than the right one. Would that be a fair assessment? Okay. Now, just to show you, the indeed of the of an identical length. Okay, and. I said at the beginning that these optical illusions usually have a basis in, uh, in the real world such that they help us speed up the processing and that they help us make sense of the input faster. And this is an optical illusion that's very, uh, very important to how we perceive depth. And this helps us to um, basically understand that in the left picture, the corner is 
directed towards us, and in the right picture, it's away from us. Okay, and it's that depth perception which causes the optical illusion. So it does actually make sense. It's it's rooted or it's anchored to um, something in the real world. Okay, moving on to pattern recognition. And I'm doing something quite happy that not too many academics are here because I'm using sources from the internet to be more precise. This is from Mike and Hess Cheeseburgers. Um, but they're a great source for that kind of picture. Um, and it should be fairly easy to see the face in there, right? Now, pattern recognition is something that we're extremely good at. Um, we're the brain's almost desperate to find patterns because the more patterns and the more rules we find, um, the more we can reduce the uncertainty for us and the uncertainty in our environment. Um, finding patterns and finding rules means um, introducing an element of predictability and an element of certainty. Okay? And if things are more predictable, then we feel more in control. So that's something... We're, we're almost built for of finding patterns. And it's not always a bad thing. If, if you're learning a skill, if you're starting to become competent in something, what usually happens is that you start chunking data. So one example would be someone learning to play chess, who at the start um, would perceive a chess board be uh, a sum of individual positions of the pieces on the board and it, it'll look quite chaotic and if you show the board to them they won't be able to recreate the exact same constellation. Now someone who's been playing chess for, for years or probably for decades um, can get so experienced in chess that we can recognise certain classical constellation or certain moves or certain uh, positions from, from famous chess games. So if you show them one of those constellations, they recognize it as one constellation, as one, one schema, almost as one template, and then can recreate the entire board with all the correct positions, simply by, by chunking, because they're not, um, they're not memorizing the individual positions, but they're memorizing the constellation. Uh, similarly, if uh, you are learning an instrument, for example, a piano, uh, when you start... Uh, you look at music mostly uh, as com comprised of individual notes and at some point you'll start looking at it as comprising of um, different chords and then later on in chord progressions okay? and all that frees up memory space because you're starting to, to chunking you're starting to um, memorise or remember greater chunks of data as one single bit of information so, having said that, that it can be quite beneficial, obviously. There is a downside to this because we're so prone to um, finding patterns that we're starting to find patterns even in, in random data. And um, one of the, one of the uh, quite favourite or famous examples is when you think of someone and the phone rings. Okay? And you might remember several of those instances where you thought of a friend and the phone rang and you thought we must have a connection, clearly they, they, they felt that I was thinking of him um, 
But what we're, what we're overlooking are all the instances where um, that friend probably thought of us and the phone, or we thought of that friend and the phone didn't ring. We didn't think of them and the phone rang anyway, and we didn't think of them and the phone didn't ring. Okay, so we're looking, we've got a two by two uh, matrix almost, and we're looking at this one particular case where both we were thinking of him and the phone rang, just because we're so, so prone to finding these patterns. Um, just to give you a few more examples of a very specific type of, of pattern recognition is pareidolia, so the, the tendency to finding human shapes, and particularly face shaped uh, patterns in, in random data. Um, so the left is the face on Mars, or what, what was considered to be a face-like uh, formation on the surface of Mars. I'm not quite sure whether you can, can see it very well. Um, to the right of it is a, um, a woman figure-shaped tree. Um, left bottom is a sad alarm clock. <laughs> Centre bottom is a sink. Um, right bottom is the face of Mother Teresa on the toast that was sold off on eBay for $10,000. And um, I'm not quite sure whether you can see the face of Jesus in the right family picture. Can you see that face? Mm -hmm. I actually find it difficult to see anything else, but, but what it is, if you look at it, it's two girls, one with a hood and one without sitting to the right of probably their father. Can you see the two girls? <laughs> There's another one to the right of it. At least I think that's what it is. But there's definitely at least one girl in a hood. It really is Jesus, isn't it? It probably is. <laughs> it's one of my favourite. Oh, actually, that is my favourite one. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so can everyone see the angry bunny face? <laughs> and that's the cat. Thank you. Right. I shall be tempting fate, but trying to show you a video of um, a really nice demonstration of superstitious behaviour. And can I just say the fact that I want to say to show this video has nothing to do with the fact that David Tennant stars in it. <laughs> so let's see how that works. Oh yeah, if I say courtesy of Channel 4, um, I've got it from their website. They don't know anything about it, but yeah, it's from Channel 4. <laughs> Yeah. 
demonstration of how you can get to the superstitious behaviour. And what you'll find is that the more complicated the rules get, and obviously the longer you go on, the more complicated they have to be to account for all the randomness. So X only works if I do A, but only if it's preceded by 2 times B and 3 times C. Um, so it gets more and more elaborated, more and more complex and difficult but what you also find is that when you then check how confident people are in their rules or how, how sure they are that they found the right pattern, this increase in difficulty and complexity directly relates to an increase in confidence. So they're more confident if they come up with these really elaborate rules than they are if um, the end product is a very simple rule or they, they don't manage to find a rule, which would be correct because there isn't any. Okay. And we'll return to uh, Darren Brown in a minute, although I'm sad to say it doesn't feature David Henland again. <laughs> um, okay, another shortcut, um, and this is a very broad shortcut, is 
um, the, the way we as humans always compare ourselves to others. Um, it seems very logical. We, we used to live in groups, we still live in groups. Uh, we need to get along with others, uh, usually, to survive. Um, and in most of the cases, looking at other people's behaviour to get a clue of what's considered appropriate behaviour or not, is actually a good shortcut. Okay? Um, if we think back at um, maybe 20, 30,000 years ago, uh, if you tri travelled west, it would be a really good idea to follow your tribe and go with them and not walk in the other direction. Uh, if they all run away from the tiger, running away too would be usually considered a good idea because those that don't run away get sort of selected out. Um, so in most of the cases, usually it's a fairly reliable cue. Uh, and it also means that we can learn from what other people do. We don't have to go through the same experience or we don't have to go through the entire learning process of how things work because we can take a shortcut and, and copy other people's behaviour. But it doesn't work or it gets really ugly um, if we're getting to the territory of conformity and obedience where um, we listen to what other people say because they have a certain status, a certain rank, they're, they're in a position of authority. Um, and obviously we also, to progress, need people to... Um, to have an innovative thought and to go against the majority. Okay? Someone at some point must have been the first one to go, you know what, I might just try out that fire thing. Just because we haven't used it before doesn't mean we shouldn't use it now. Okay, so you need those you need those non-conforming individuals, otherwise you, you can't progress. Um, and another case that's rather dangerous is a phenomenon called groupthink. And this is usually when in a group the group members want to demonstrate their allegiance or their commitment to the group and to the group ideas. Um, so let's take an example of a group um, group of advisors discussing, um, I don't know, let's say taxes or tax rights. And the general consensus is, yeah, tax rights would probably be a good idea. How high should it be? Let's say 1.5%. Okay, I'm just making up numbers now. Now everyone thinks this is a good idea and everyone thinks, right, I'll show just how much committed I am to this idea the group came up with. So I'll reinforce this idea and also I'll say, you know what, instead of 1.5, let's go for 2%. And then it starts escalating and it starts spiraling because after some discussion, the 2% then become the general consensus. Now, in order to demonstrate that you're particularly committed to the group, you need to up that. Okay? So you'll end up with something that, um, if people had thought about it on their own, would have been way beyond their estimates or way beyond their sound judgment. But because they're discussing it in a group, it starts escalating. Okay. Um, Quick, quick question. Bochum and Berlin, both are German cities. Hands up if you think Bochum is the larger one of those two. Okay, hands up if you think Berlin is the larger one. 
Okay. Now, what you've just used, probably, possibly, unless you know the exact answer, and I had to look it up, so uh, what you used probably is something called the availability heuristic. That something is more accessible to us um, the more often we've encountered it. And simply speaking, you'll probably have heard of Vernon much more often than you've heard of Bochum. Okay, I'd be surprised if you heard of Bochum at all. But of Berlin, you probably have heard quite a bit. Um, and the fact that this is more prominent in your mind and more available is a good heuristic, or it's a good cue that this is probably the larger of the two cities. So in this case, the heuristic works. Okay, it brought you to the right idea. Um, and just for completeness sake, Bochum has about, um, I think, 100 and... No, 490,000, and Berlin has about 4.5 million, so by the factor of 10, uh, quite different population sizes. Another heuristic some of you may have heard of is the um, representative heuristic, where if you ask people, okay, imagine a shy woman of, in her middle 40s, and she loves books and cats, now what's more likely, that she works in a bank or that she's a librarian and she volunteers in her free time? Okay, this is a leading question. Who thinks that she uh, is a librarian and volunteers in her free time is more likely? Okay, excellent. Leading questions still work. Right. What you've done is uh, you've probably used stereotypes, okay? Uh, a very typical picture of what people usually do and how... Um, personal traits are combined. But if you look at it from a, very, from a logical, mathematical point of view, she works in a bank as a single property. She loves cats and she uh, volunteers in her free time. Those are, those are two properties. Those are two propositions. And mathematically speaking, the combination should be less likely than just a single property. Does that make sense? Now... <clears throat> I say mathematically speaking because the fact is that these heuristics work because surprisingly often they are quite close to, to your real life experience and in your real life experience um, you would think that some personality traits are combined more often. Okay, it's, that it's very rare that you see the, uh, the banker uh, as a shy woman in her middle 40s and she loves cats. It's a very unusual combination, so it's based on, on reality and real-life experience, but it doesn't always work. Okay, okay ten seconds. Uh, just think for ten seconds what you can currently see, hear, perceive while you're in this room. Just ten seconds. Okay. Okay. Does that sound like a fair representation of what you probably came up with? Okay. Now I had to make a wild step, but there are lots of other things you could potentially perceive, or you may potentially perceive while you're sitting in this room as well. Um, right. Um, so this was me imagining what the room might be like 
Um, but what you could hear is people talking in the audience. Um, every time someone moves, you hear the rustle of the fabric. Uh, you hear when someone fixes in on their seat. Um, you know, someone's tapping their fingers on the table. You can see the slides, but you cannot just see the slides. You also see the wall, and you see the black frame, and you see the colour of the seats. You see the light. And um, I'm actually really, really close to the time. I'm so proud of this. <laughs> um, so the, the point I'm trying to make is that at every single point of time, you get a lot more perceptual input than you're consciously aware of. Okay, so you need to make um, you need to make a choice. You need to have a focus, and there needs to be some sort of filter because if you, we're trying to process all that input all of the time, you go literally insane. Okay, this would be pathological if you couldn't if you couldn't switch off. If you couldn't focus your attention on one thing, then on the other thing, um, you you'd not be able to function. So naturally, we always have the selective uh, perception or selective processing of the input. Um, and that's by directing our attention towards something and ignoring the other uh, perceptual input. And that's necessary for us to function. We wouldn't be able to function if that wasn't the case. But what happens is that we miss the details that may be important. Um, because both our attention is guided by, by our expectations, and if we don't expect something to happen, we may have our focus on the wrong target. Now, um, how many of you have seen the, the video with um, the ping pong ball exchange and the gorilla in the background? Is that also oh, fairly standard knowledge, okay? That's a good example. You're focusing your attention on the exchange of the ping pong balls, and because you're not expecting anything else, you miss the guy in the gorilla costume running through the background of the video. Once you see it again, you can't believe that you missed it. But it's because you had an expectation towards one thing only, um, so your attention was on that, and you missed out on the background. Um, and another thing where, or another case where this focus of attention can go really haywire is our tendency to attend to smaller changes, uh, sorry, to, to larger changes more and faster than to smaller changes. Um, and that can be quite, quite dangerous. In animal experiments, for example, if you have um, a rat or a frog in a container with water and you heat up the water, if you do it very, very, very slowly, um, the animals almost cook to death because the change is so slow that they don't perceive the change in water temperature. Whereas if you change it very fast and very noticeably, they would immediately try to escape. Okay? Um, and I always see the parallel to very stressful working environments. Not quite the getting cooked to death thing, <laughs> but um, I think we're all familiar with how stress can build up over a long period of time, and it's just one more task, and it's one more task, and no single task is enough to say, okay, this is enough, I've got enough work to do. Um, 
this much I can't manage. It's the combination and it's a slow accumulation over time that's so dangerous. Uh, whether it's stress in the working environment or whether it's stress in the relationship or um, whether it's your general health that may be deteriorating, it's those very small changes over time that are really, really dangerous to spot. Okay, now this is where I'm taking a shortcut. Um, it would usually be a good place to do a little study, a little real-life experiment. Um, I've done this in the past and I had a 50-50% uh, success rate. But the uh, psychology literature tells me that it should be much closer to about 100%. So I'm not taking a risk. I'll tell you uh, what I've done and what worked uh, a few times and didn't work a few other times, and I'll tell you what should have been the outcome. So, <clears throat> what I did was divide the audience into two groups uh, and have them have one group look at this slide while the other group looked away or had to close their eyes. And I asked this group to just consider the following two questions. First question, um, do you think an orange weighs more than 150 grams? Single yes or no question. Second question, what do you think? How much does an orange weigh? Okay. Second group got this slide and this slide only. Uh, do you think an orange weighs more than 50 gram? Yes or no? What do you think? How much does an orange weigh? Now, in theory, I asked a single yes no question and an estimate question. Okay? In theory, that yes-no question shouldn't have a bearing on the estimate. But it does. What happens is that if you provide an anchor, if you provide a figure to start with, people take that literally, or figuratively, as an anchor. They adjust their estimate, because they go, surely it's not 50 gram. It's probably closer to 70 or 80. But the other group goes, yeah, it won't be exactly 150, it's probably more closer to 120. But you still end up with the answers clustering around the two initial anchors you've given. Whereas if you'd not given the anchor, the, the answers would spread much more and would probably be much closer to the right answer as well. Now the interesting bit is that uh, you can take this quite far. Um, the way I did it was that my question was actually relevant to the, the weight of an orange. Okay? But you can, you can take this quite far, and they've done this in studies, uh, and have people just write down their social security number. The last two or the first two digits of the social security number, which, um, for this purpose, is as random as you can get. Okay? And they still have the anchoring effect. So they use the social security number, the figure that's given in the social security number, as an anchor for the weight estimate. Just because it's a figure, it's a, it's a piece of data that's out there. And you can even go a step further and say, look, this number we've given you, the social security number, is really random. It doesn't have anything to do with the estimate you're, you're supposed to give. Just ignore it. Write it down, ignore it. And the effect gets weaker, but it's still there which I find really, really interesting. It's a bit scary, but really, really interesting. So, just to summarise, this, what anchoring does, or what we're doing when we're, when we're using anchoring, 
is that we're using the existing data that we've been provided in the context of, of our task to make a decision or to make a judgment or, or uh, an estimate, which is obviously a good thing in theory because we don't have to start from scratch. Okay, we'll, we'll use the existing data, we adjust slightly for our experience and our knowledge, and we hope that we come up with the right result. But on the downside, this is something that can be really, really difficult to avoid. Um, and also, it's sometimes used as a, uh, as a sales technique. Um, so you would have three items in a, in a shop window. One's very cheap with very few um, functionalities. One's really, really expensive with a lot of functionalities. One's slightly less expensive and still has a lot of functionalities. What they're really trying to sell is the one in the middle, using the really expensive one as your anchoring point and going, oh, that one isn't actually quite that expensive, and it still has a lot of the same functionalities. Okay? Okay, this is um, something I could probably uh, talk about for a day on its own. I'll try to make it, make it short. Um, I'm using this as an um, umbrella shortcut for everything to do with understanding and using and applying statistical knowledge um, and understanding statistics as they are presented. Now, this may, be, this may be a good thing if instead of looking at the numbers and coming to a careful consideration, sometimes we can just rely on our guts and our experience and sometimes that works. Uh, it also means that we don't have any, we don't need any specialist uh, experience. But it can go, uh, it can go haywire because we're so easily misled, misled by the numbers. Um, and it's a dangerous combination because not only are we bad at handling numbers, we're also really bad at assessing how well we can handle numbers. Okay, so we usually think we're, we can do this a lot better than we can actually do. Um, one example is um, that we often tend to perceive a, a causation, that something causes another thing to happen, when what we're actually observing is a correlation of two things going together, but not necessarily one thing being caused by the other thing. Um, and a really bad example, or bad because it's used so often, are all those, um, the all these study results that are reported in the media, when everything, if it gets boiled down to a single sentence, something like um, spouses who kiss each other goodbye in the morning live five years longer. Okay, it, it really is presented that simple. Or if you drink one and a half litre of water per day, um, your chances of getting cancer are decreased. And if you, if you have a look at it, I'd, I'd actually suggest you don't because it can get really, really irritating. But they mistaken the correlation between causation because what, what's probably more likely the case is, for example, that spouses to kiss, kiss each other goodbye in the morning have a healthier relationship. And that means less stress, they communicate better, um, okay, they have got, they've got less arguments, and that will increase the general quality of life, and that will probably also increase the lifespan. 
So it's not quite as, as, as simple between those two things. Um, someone who drinks a litre and a half water per day might also generally have a healthier nutrition. Uh, do my exercises. Um, okay, and that might reduce their cancer risk. So you, all, you always have those hidden factors um, which we're not really good um, in, in taking into consideration. Relative changes are usually perceived to be much larger than absolute changes. And a couple of, of months ago, there was something in the news about an increase of, I think, 25% um, in the NHS, because the NHS was paying for uh, hymen restorations of young Muslim women. Okay, and the issue was that this had been increased by 25%. So a huge increase. If you actually looked at the data, um, the year they were talking about, they paid for 30 women. So that increase was, uh, I think, a total of six in absolute figures. And it's so easy to just ignore the absolute numbers um, and focus on the relative change, because relatively speaking, 25% is huge. Okay, now um, I'll, I'll start by saying something very trivial, and I'll, then I'll explain it, but hopefully it makes sense. On average, things are average. Okay? The average value of, um, or the, the average um, level of skill is the sum of everything that's not average. So when you look at your performance in a sport, you'll have days where you're really good, you'll have days where you're rather bad. But, <coughs> sorry, over the long period, over the long time, it will average out around what your average level of competence is. Okay? Now, um, if you look at this uh, sort of generic graph, of um, skills, values, sort of fluctuating about, around the average, around the means. This will indicate, so whenever it's above the line, it's better than average, whenever it's below the line, it's worse than average, but I think you can sort of agree that over a period of time it's fluctuating around the mean. Okay, now, if, let's consider this to be the performance of a footballer, okay? Over time, I don't know, let's, let's say this is a year. Um, what do you say, at what point of time would other clubs be most interested to buy this footballer of his current, current club? Would you think that this point of time is probably a good candidate? <coughs> okay. At what point of time do you think it's most likely that this footballer's performance drops off rapidly? Round about here? Yeah? There was something that uh, used to be called a, a sports illustrated phenomenon, that whenever um, a sportler was good enough to appear on the front page of the Sports Illustrated, um, that this would be really, really bad for him because... Um, Soon after, his performance would drop like a stone. It's just because at the point where it's most, most far away from the average, that's also the point in time where it's most likely to drop back to the average. 
Different example. If we think about a chronic condition, let's say back pain, uh, and we'll say um, performance is general well-being. Okay, so if it's above the line, you're doing better than usual. If it's below the line, uh, it's worse than usual. Your back pain's more strong. Okay, another leading question. At what point of time do you think would you be most likely to try something you haven't tried before, to try a new sort of treatment? Would that be a fair representation? Okay. At what point of time, another leading question, do you think it's most likely that your uh, general well-being will, will kick up and that you'll start feeling better? Same point, yeah. This is why it's so terribly difficult for lay people to really uh, assess the effectiveness, the effectiveness of medical treatments. It's particularly difficult for conditions that are chronic uh, and that fluctuate anyway. So anything like back pain or asthma or skin conditions that have a usual tendency of flaring up and going back and flaring up and going back. And this is obviously at that point of time where people are most likely to try something new, go to a homeopath, try acupuncture, uh, Bach flower remedies, whatever, is statistically speaking the time it's most likely for the condition to improve anyway. And it's so <laughs> difficult to not see this as an immediate result of the new treatment they tried. Okay? Um, Part of the way the system seems. Um, now it's time to form the check. Okay. Um, I'm cutting out one video because I think we're running a bit out of time, but I'll, I'll see what I can maybe do it later. Um, okay, after ignoring the numbers, or rather uh, having a look at the numbers and then probably coming up with an interpretation that's slightly biased, I'll move on to a shortcut that I would call ignoring what you know what you know yourself to be true. And I'll start off with my, famous, uh, with my favorite quote from American Beauty, never underestimate the power of denial. So, um, is anyone, are people still smoking? <laughs> is anyone a smoker in this room? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'll have to say that this is all just from theoretical knowledge. I'm not a smoker, but I have been assured that this is a fairly accurate representation. Um, so if you're a smoker, you, you know in theory that smoking is bad for your health, right? And that um, it's expensive and it's likely to cause a long-term increase in the risk of suffering from cancer. So the, the theory I think most smokers are aware of, okay? The practice I think, again, most smokers are aware of that they continue to smoke because it's relaxing and it helps you to socialise with other smokers. Um, and um, I think particular smokers who've tried before are quite concerned with trying to quit smoking again because they're worried about gaining weight. So what do we do? Well, you, you come up with an explanation like, you know, my grandpa used to smoke two packs a day and he lived to 91 and I could be run over by a bus tomorrow so I might as well enjoy life uh, while I'm living and um, so on. Does, does that seem like a fair representation of 
the thought process. <laughs> okay. So what what happens if we know two things that are contradicting each other is that we experience cognitive dissonance. Okay, every time you do something of which you know you shouldn't do it or it's wrong and you do it anyway, you somehow have to cope with that feeling of anxiety or, or nervousness or just this feeling that something isn't wrong. So you need to reconcile those two, two thoughts you're having. And that's a very natural thing because we want to be consistent. We want to think of ourselves as someone who holds consistent beliefs and does uh, as they say. But if we don't reconcile those contradictions in long term, um, this can actually be quite harmful. Okay, at some point, these things will clash. Um, so it doesn't quite work in the long term, but in the short term, it's a really fantastic coping mechanism. Now, this cognitive dissonance um, is, is a rather strong factor um, and it also plays part in um, whenever you're trying to diet or whether uh, you're continuing with something you shouldn't uh, do. But it's just a small part in what makes us um, do things and believe in things that may contradict other things we believe. And to slowly wrap it up, I wanted to give you a summary of what I would consider the building blocks of belief. Um, pretty much every belief we hold because it's my, it's my genuine belief that people uh, don't intentionally hold beliefs they know to be false okay? usually everything you, you believe or you consider belief of yours uh, has a history you somehow arrived at that point um, and that can be the social validation of your friends and your family believing things, things from the same things you do or having taught you and told you about these things, for example, horoscopes and star signs, okay? Um, you might quite visibly put your trust in experts, um, and if, particularly with horoscopes, for example, it might give you a certain sense of certainty and comfort of knowing that some things can be predicted, and predictability is control, and control feels safer. Uh, Although you also, you also want to protect yourself and maintain your confidence. So you want to be, uh, you want to think of yourself as someone who uh, is correct and whose beliefs and knowledge is, knowledge is correct. And then uh, there's a thing like confirmation bias working for you, where you remember all the times where things turned out the way you were expecting them to do, and you forget the times they didn't. Now, um, about that trust in experts things, I had a very recent experience of just two hours ago. Um, I think believing in what experts and professionals tell you is usually a good heuristic. Uh, so um, I put my trust in that heuristic when I was trying to get from uh, London Bridge to this campus. Um, and I believe the two railway professionals in uniform, and they told me, yes, you can take this train, and yes, this train stops at New Cross. Which it didn't, so I had to get up in Greenwich. Um, so that's uh, 
it, in, in theory, it would have been a really good heuristic. Right? If I don't know my way, asking someone who should know what they're talking about seems like a fantastic idea. Um, just it doesn't always work. Now, the reason I've listed these building blocks of belief is because I want to make the point that if you're trying to change someone's belief, you're not challenging this one particular belief in isolation. Okay, so if you've got a friend who, and I'll take star signs as uh, a hopefully not a very controversial issue, <laughs> um, but if you have a friend who generally believes in star signs and horoscopes, and you tell them, look, you know that's not working, that's, it's nonsense. What you're telling them is that those friends that tell them it works, those friends are wrong. So their friends don't tell them the truth. Uh, you're also telling them that the experts they trust and the sources they trust, where they usually get their information from, they are wrong. They, don't, they use unreliable sources. Uh, in this particular case, you would also imply or say, look, as much as you want it, life's not certain, life's not that predictable, uh, and sometimes you'll just have to wait and see how things turn out. Um, oh, and by the way, uh, you're wrong. Uh, and you're not as clever or consistent as you think you are, and your memory is faulty, your memory doesn't quite work right, and you're biased in what you remember and what you think. While not saying that explicitly, on some level that's all implied if you're challenging the belief, okay? Because that's what that belief is based or partially belief, uh, based on. So, I don't think there's a single one-size-fits-all approach. Um, what we can do if you want people to challenge their belief is, I think, uh, giving them the tools to challenge that belief by themselves. Uh, because whenever you try to do it by yourself, whenever uh, you try it as an external source, you have all those building blocks and all that history of how that belief <coughs> came, to, came to pass. Um, so the best approach, I think, uh, is to work at giving them the tools to critically think on, on the to those topics for themselves. And just to wrap this up, and this is not mine, this is from uh, Tevris and Aronson, a really, really good book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which I can uh, recommend to, to everyone. Um, if we think about a topic or a belief or a question, and let's say this is, I don't know, dowsing, okay? You may start at a point where you don't really know whether it works, you don't have an opinion. It could go either way. But once you decide on one answer, uh, once you invest some thought or some mental effort to, to justify your answer, the more difficult it gets to change your opinion, okay? So at that point, you'll probably say undecided. After some time, you'll probably say probably. Sometime later, you'll say you're quite sure it works. And sometime later, you'll say, oh, it's definitely, it's definitely working. That should be obvious to everyone. 
But at that point, you've invested so much time and cognitive effort and emotional energy, and it's becoming more and more central to yourself that it's really, really difficult to get back from that point up the slope. Okay, just to reinforce the general idea that what I've talked about is just a small selection, and there's uh, loads more out there. Um, and if you want to have a look at some of these topics, I would recommend any of those books as really good starter books to get a broader picture or to find out what you find particularly interesting. And with that, I wanted to say thanks. And I'm open for questions.